Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, uh, welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski, and today we are going to discuss the war and the future of Europe, a very insightful report by the Visegrad Insights. And we have the privilege to have an author of the report, Wojciech Przybylski, a prominent Polish expert of the CE region and editor-in-chief of the Visegrad Insights, which is perhaps the best outlet on the Central Europe available in English. And uh, he's also a CEO of Respublika Nova, which is an influential Polish intellectual magazine. Wojciech, thank you for accepting the invitation to do that. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Leszek. It's a real pleasure to, to be here. and. And warm welcome to listeners of the Liberal Europe podcast. So your your, your visit to Oxford uh, in St. Anthony's triggered uh, my interest, renewed interest in your report um, on the war and the future of Europe. And perhaps before we start talking about the content of this report, can you please elaborate uh, how you prepared it and, and about the method, methodology of putting this report together because I think it's quite unique, and I think our listeners will be interested in the method that you that you used to put this report and the other reports that you that you prepared, which are highly recommended. Uh, so can you can you tell us about this method? Thanks. Uh, yeah, I think this is uh, an important point to clarify at the very beginning. Uh, indeed, for the past four years, we've been engaging ourselves in what is called a strategic foresight exercise, and why we've been doing that uh, comes. On one side, as a as a response, as a demand side, and on the other hand, it is partly our um, competitive edge uh, element of of our identity and our of our uh, network. So I'll start with the with the demand side. There is an increasing demand across Europe to understand Central Europe to to have a structured and understandable uh, perspective that comes from the East of the uh, European bloc. And that demand is is never fulfilled enough. And we have heard that through various accounts, but among others, uh, importantly, I think we heard that uh, specifically in the State of the Union address in September from Ursula von der Leyen, when, when she said, we should have listened to Central Eastern Europe. And this is a, that's a direct quote. So now that you listen, and um, we could say, uh, there are more things to say, and there are more things to say than uh, Mr. Kaczynski or Mr. Orban has to uh, has has you know usually to say, and uh, usually they communicate, because they are hardly representative of the Central European mindset. They are, uh, of course, part of the political establishment, but uh, what is definitely missing is the whole spectrum. Of, of this region. And here I'll come to our uh, competitive advantage in a way. Uh, what you called us, and I think I'm very, very humbled to, to hear that from you, uh, is, is that we are a premium uh, source of analysis and, and uh, also opinion, commentary and debate on Central Europe. And we do that. We've been doing that for the past 10 years, uh, connecting journalists, uh, intellectuals, experts, politicians, business people in, in one um, space for discussing, discussing the future of Central Europe within the Europe. And then some over four years ago, we had the moment of revelation. There was Brexit. There was, um, uh, there was a big uh, question about the future of Europe. There was the invasion, the first, uh, not even invasion, it was a partition of, uh, attempted partition of, of Ukraine. 
um, in 2014. And uh, European Commission in this moment was releasing also a report, Juncker report, uh, around 2016. Um, they released the report um, on the on the future scenarios of uh, of European Union. Now we thought that they are too too rosy, <laughs> too too colorful in a way, even though they were pretty reasonable. And the problem with these reports and scenario based and foresight from within tax tax paid uh, institutions is that usually they do not have a mandate to say something um, which will scare you, which will uh, give you a food for thought. So immediately we uh, brought back the, the basic methods of, of foresight work, which usually produce uh, many negative scenarios. And based on some negative scenarios that may happen, we started to work on the recommendations. And throughout several years, we've been working on that, utilizing uh, that method also to connect the region again. The most uh, diverse region of European Union overall needs some methods to connect, you know, sometimes these little small uh, intellectual outlets or uh, experts or think tanks, which are are one-man show, and to put it in a more coherent but also more vocal um, uh, place in the European Union debate. So that's what we've been doing. And with this report, we've done the same. It's part of, um, of our contribution to the Conference on the Future of Europe, and it's updated with the question uh, of the war uh, because uh, we released it, we prolonged the release, of, so it, it is essentially a shadow report to the institutional uh, report of the EU. And this uh, shadow report uh, includes the perspective of the war, which overall wasn't so much present uh, in the 2021-2022 debate in the EU. Right, so perhaps you might and in a very like encapsulated way, try to introduce those four baseline scenarios. And also, I know that you included at the beginning of each of them kind of perspective of ongoing war, but obviously you were composing those reports through these consultations before the war started. I think it was even before it became kind of imminent, right? So... Uh, can you, uh, I'm curious also, like, so can you, can you first, like, give us like a one or two sentences for, for each scenario? And also, uh, I'm very curious, how did you come up with those particular scenarios? So is it like, do you think this is the most, which is mo- most likely to happen? Or is it like they, those scenarios manage to capture a most kind of divergent paths for the region, uh, but they are not necessarily that likely to materialize? So can you give us characterizations and also perhaps uh, how you think about those scenarios now from the perspective of, well, one or two, even two years' time? Excellent question. I'll start from the, uh, from, uh, from the end, from your last uh, point, uh, because that should explain a lot of how, uh, how these scenarios play out and what, what's their purpose. Um, in a foresight exercises, we're not talking about probability, so we're trying to uh, display and open up a debate, but also structure the debate, so include the voices, even those that we disagree with, um, into showing a perspective and the consequences of a certain mindset that drive political decisions and that develop political scenarios overall. These scenarios are um, a perspective from CE on the whole of Europe. And they are by no means representing uh, all of the voices, but we have distilled the most uh, uh, differentiated elements 
to see what are the potential different outcomes. So each of these scenarios is about a different outcome built on multiple and many, many variables that are not even presented in the report because during the discussion we decided that we will not include them because from various you know political dynamics, type of you know outcomes of elections, sometimes you end up in the same point. These scenarios are were meant to to show us that Europe may end up in different uh, points in in the political uh, future. Um, the two underpinning assumptions uh, how we worked on those uh, were a that Europe has been building up and we know that for the past 10 years, uh, a, a concept of strategic autonomy, even though Mr. Macron uh, took it away into this uh, very French debate uh, about uh, being uh, separated from the United States, we were more focused on the other elements of strategic autonomy that even Central European countries were kind of okay. And this included building up energy independence. Uh, there were energy packages and eventually Green Deal, you know, the, there was a manifestation of strength of the European Union in the Brexit negotiations when European Union was basically the stronger uh, uh, part um, against all odds. Uh, there, were, there were decisions to fund uh, arms exports and defense uh, exports, which is uh, unique in the European history through the European Peace Facility. But not only, that's just to remind everyone that's over 5 billion euro that is being spent by the EU, a peace project in its essence on exporting arms uh, to, to even to conflict areas like, like Ukraine. So there are many things that have been building up, and there are many more in the report that have been building up strategic autonomy. And we've been revolving about the, the, the question of how this strategic autonomy is also linked to the democratic security of Central Europe. And our second assumption was that Moscow and Russia is a declining power, and that's not a revelation. I mean, we've known that from many intelligence reports. These are the basics of of the U.S. defense strategy, global defense strategy, Russia is declining as a power. Now, with this decline, it projects its and asserts its place in the world by being aggressive towards its neighbors. And there were multiple instances uh, since 1991. There were over 14 conflicts that Russia has started. That's just as many as it's, it has been running throughout the whole Cold War period. So that, that gives you a sense of... of uh, what the future is, and our assumption is that Russia is not losing its aggressive posture. Now, the four scenarios based on these assumptions is that in one scenario, we call it losing strategic autonomy. We may find ourselves in a moment, uh, and currently we're in a moment of unity in European Union, specifically across the West as well, in which there will be an offer of peace or ceasefire such compelling to uh, our Western partners in the EU that they will push forward so for immediate ceasefire, while many, if not most, in Central Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, will want the, the job done, job finished, that is to uh, regaining control over its sovereign territory. And from that split in perspective, in strategic mindset, um, we may end up in uh, ending up in a divided uh, and disunity uh, in Europe uh, which will no longer be able to deliver on these key unified priorities because that may be the beginning of the end. So that's that's a doom and gloom scenario, despite obvious uh, merits of stopping hostilities uh, and you know killing civilians and even soldiers, which is totally unnecessary, barbaric um, uh, on behalf of Russia. Now, second scenario is uh, what we call United European Patchwork, 
And we think through the next, because the whole, all of this uh, exercise is in the perspective of, until uh, 2030, we're thinking through the consequences of the um, drive underpinned by security uh, interests for more European response and more European security system after the one we've had is obviously gone. And we see that many more actors are interested in that, including Great Britain. There are many moves that the European Union has been making, in, including um, the, the decision it took to invite Ukraine, Moldova, and Western Bar- Balkan countries uh, a step forward towards the integration. So we think through the consequence of enlarging uh, a, a drive for enlarged and more common European project uh, underpinned by security, in which, interestingly, we find uh, Britain more and more uh, embedded, even though not uh, precisely European Union member anymore, but still looking for ways how to build a common European project. We have just been witnessing the new proposal and a new deal on the Northern Ireland with uh, Prime Minister Sunak and uh, President Ursula von der Leyen. So I think it's very relevant showing that there is a drive under during this war to make, uh, make the best out of it for also un- unity of the Europe. So um, we see that there is a strong drive from Central European countries for enlargement. And we understand that the enlargement will be also um, um, dependent on certain institutional changes, reforms uh, that we hint in this scenario. We, call, we, we found the that the so-called passerelle clause will enable to reform decision-making process in the foreign security policy domains without treaty change, should that be actually a trade-off. In some countries, if we treat Berlin seriously, uh, will want that uh, in case they are to give a green light for, uh, for a future enlargement. But that overall creates a, you know, like a patchwork family, a patchwork Europe. Um, uh, so not a perfectly designed but nevertheless, moving forward, uh, uh, continent with uh, with some uh, positive developments. European demographic deal. That's a third scenario, and it's a particular worry from Central Eastern Europe that, um, as the long uh, con- as the war continues, many countries, Ukraine in this case, is depopulating, but many other Central and especially certain Central Southern countries are depopulating even faster. And those fears of losing demographic um, potential uh, underpin a lot of political uh, populism and and right-wing extremism. Um, They're also part of the discussion uh, across the many other EU countries. Uh, So we think through the consequences of an endured support that EU is pledging for Ukraine, which will cost a lot, obviously will also bring benefits. But in order to upkeep the social cohesion and social peace, you would say, between generations and between the different sensitivities of related demography, European Union will need to come up with uh, social policy, uh, social policies response. Uh, just um, just as it has been doing already, building up on the pandemic experience and response of, of the EU as a whole, uh, or just as it has just been pledging to um, initiate new programs of psychological relief help uh, that, is, that is a pan-European program. And overall, we see that there will be uh, additional costs and burdens that will um, hamper the prospect of any economic growth for EU, but it will uh, be at the cost and the expense um, uh, that is uh, that, that is the expense that um, that the political leadership will be 
ready to make in order to maintain peace and to prevent um, the type of, uh, you know, political cleavages. And the fourth scenario uh, plays out kind of the drive that we hear also from the European Parliament that we should reform the treaty. And we are trying to think through, okay, if we reform the treaty and it's perfectly well made, perfect case, perfect, there is no scenario for us. I mean, then it's, it's, you know, great, bright future. But we are looking into what may go wrong. And that's why we call it careful what EU wish for. Um, and we are thinking that in the process of reforming, opening and reforming a treaty, we may end up in um, imperfect check and balance solutions. Now, think through what else can go wrong from Central and Eastern Europe, meaning that after Orban, we may face just a new wave of populism. We're inventing here a character, uh, Mr. Novak, who, who is the leader of transnational. After all, this is about treaty change also proposal to create more transnational politics in the EU. So we have a more transnational populism that comes from Central Europe, Central Eastern Europe, even with a potential of, of many, many voters from Ukraine that have been heavily experienced um, by the war and have different sentiments and different um, kind of psychological uh, trauma to, to, to uh, deal with, and they may be just unified in a, in a big platform that spells more trouble. So throughout this scenario, we say, okay, hold your horses, think through, and, uh, and it helps also to explain why Nordic countries and Central Eastern European countries wrote uh, in response to the Conference on the Future of Europe um, and on paper uh, calling to hold off any, any plans for treaty reform because this is not the right moment to do so. And in a way that explains also the logic behind such a such a formulation. These are the the four scenarios. Right. Thank you. I, I think people now have a better better grasp on w what you wrote, and and I think these characteristics are are actually. I mean, you, you still I still encourage people to read the report, but I think you, you have uh, kind of the outlook and also why this kind of scenarios might be not necessarily the most likely, but when you think about kind of uh, regional experience, I'm thinking particularly of Jesus Tempowski and his essay for Cassander, like the the kind of insight that the Westerners very rarely can uh, can foresee the big tragedies and catastrophes, and and the Eastern Europeans, Poles especially, uh, well, kind of specialize in. In, in thinking in a, in about those negative scenarios sometimes, which might seem very irrational, such as was the invade, decision to invade Ukraine by Putin, right? In a rational way, it was very, uh, very hard to predict such a move. Uh, but on a deeper level, ideological level, it actually made sense from, from his perspective. So I, I'm, so I'm like keen on to perhaps think of kind of like updating because obviously you had to publish it well, just at the before the war, when the war started, from the perspective of maintaining the coalition uh, supporting Ukraine after one year of the war, we are talking almost like exactly one year after the war has started. It's almost same. It seems it's almost like on paper the scenario two, kind of one of the I would say like perhaps the most optimistic, perhaps close also to your to your heart is is it seems. Uh, at least in some in some aspects, I, I don't necessarily I'm not sure about enlargement as such, but uh, about this Western unity, keeping US in, but also having uh, a response by the by the European countries. So uh, I don't know if you agree because perhaps you have you said that you don't think about probabilities, but certainly you yourself 
have some uh, some ideas which of those scenarios might be most likely. Scenario one, I see as a kind of scenario before the war, right? So a scenario in which Orban, Kaczynski, uh, perhaps some populists in the West also gain power. Uh, and you have this kind of appeasement policy from Germany and France towards towards Russia. I would say that is at least in the very short term, it's quite unlikely. I, I wouldn't talk about like midterm. I would say that with ceasefire is possible. Scenario three, uh, it's interesting. I think it's a big it's a big issue why why EU would in, invest a lot of in the in the Eastern European countries, which well they will have to basically behave right. So they will have to be very pro-European at the same time. I think with being scared of immigration might actually diverge this this path. And scenario four is, is quite interesting because it shows that, as we saw before, that European integration, European Parliament, could be actually a very good scene for Eurosceptics, right? The first pan-European party was actually the Libertas, <laughs> very Eurosceptic party. And we see, surprisingly, a lot of cooperation from the, well, sometimes fringe national, uh, nationalist groups uh, uh, around Europe. But let's let's start with the most optimistic scenario number two and and this Kind of positive European autonomy. How do you think uh, this scenario is is, is uh, likelihood is to happen, uh, providing for for the last year which we've seen uh, of European response and transatlantic response to to the war? I, I believe that uh, we are going to see in the perspective of the next EU priorities a strong emphasis on neighborhood and perhaps enlargement. That is going to be the game, um, as we see in the global uh, perspective. The, U.S. is investing its full support behind uh, Ukraine and generally European peace. Um, but it's doing that in waiting of Europe standing on its feet with the key countries and the European institutions able to deliver um, security uh, while there is, um, that there is um, weakened, more weakened Russia. I think that that's, that's something that we are not going to see this year, but we're seeing it gradually happening over the years where U.S. is waiting for the moment to be now pivoting truly towards uh, Southeast Asia and leaving mm, up to Ukraine, Poland, Germany, France, Britain, uh, the role of um, organizing the new uh, security and peace um, uh, on, the, on the continent. And probably um, that will include at some point uh, also a reformed uh, regime in Russia will take some time. Uh, you know, we're two Poles reading all these uh, readings from from the from the past and of today, and of course we see that this this is not just happening overnight. But I think it's all also a Polish dream to have a democratic and, and free Russia at some point in the future, and that uh, that perhaps not in this decade. Th- this is happening. I, I cannot imagine otherwise. We're we're radically transforming. Well, the road is bumpy. Um, what is more encouraging, even I, I would say that this pragmatic compromise that may be made in, in some point in time is is the more likely as centralist and Europeans, even those the illiberal of illiberal mindset, are prioritizing enlargement to the Western Balkans, to to East, and and there is a moment in in which other countries of EU have embraced that idea, not already deciding about it, but they're more comfortable with making a decision based on thinking big and not just 
fulfilling uh, some basic criteria and free, essentially freezing the process. So for, I think that from that moment, we will, we will see a lot of dynamism. And the dynamism that has been the most successful European Union policy overall, that is managing neighborhood, managing close neighborhood, but also building up uh, its influence uh, to the countries of, of Africa, where where the EU has a lot to do and could do a lot more than, than is even currently doing, while the big powers uh, competition is, is taking place somewhere else. So I think, yeah, it, it, it is it is a scenario that is not just, um, you know, hopeful. It, it's getting bumpy there. It's it's not just ideal uh, outcome, but but I think it's uh, it offers some promises and some ways out. But uh, there are some dangers because you know there uh, there is a you, you mentioned the political process and, and the European elections, and we have European elections, we have American elections. I mean presidential elections next year, which will um, hopefully all go well, but they may also derail a lot of these ambitions, and then we all of a sudden. Uh, you know, wake up in a, a different reality. But, but I'm more hopeful here in a, in a sense that that even even a Republican president, uh, which will not be Donald Trump, in my opinion, is not going to be uh, such a trouble as as we've seen before. And perhaps the the, the very last thing to to ask you in in this episode would be what would be your recommendations or your recommendations based on what's what's the process of composing this report, um, the, the insight that you had for for the Western Europe uh, vis-a-vis Central or Eastern Europe, because uh, there are a lot of assumptions that perhaps you know Polish elections would move towards more democratic pro-European camp, and well, Orban would be isolated, so he might be not such a problem, and the Slovaks will maintain well, kind of stability, and Czechs are where they are actually the most progressive at the time. And um, a most constructive Czech presidency is coming uh, next um, uh, in, uh, in in July. So it's 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 a hope that actually the Central Europe will be back on the map. Uh, well, it is thanks to the war, but I mean also by the virtue of the of the countries which are involved. So if not for the if not for the big institutional reforms against which you uh, you you warn, how do you think this this uh, policy of the old Europe should be. Uh, you, you mentioned enlargement, which I think is important, especially from the Southeast Europe and for Ukraine from the perspective of Poland. But what other policies you think might encourage CEE to be more cooperative and and to see kind of revitalized European project with uh, two lungs, mm. <laughs> Eastern and Western, uh, breathing at the same time? Yeah, well, of course, we can produce a number of, of factors and policies that uh, where where Central Europe or Europe overall could could uh, put uh, its weight behind, you know, the, the, in terms of priorities. But I I will just mention one, uh, and not just for the sake of brevity at the, at the podcast, but really this is the key recommendation from the report. We are um, we are proposing to really reform and put forward the question of strategic uh, autonomy as the key issue that we both need to redefine. It cannot be defined um, in an ambiguous way as it used to be, especially by the political elites. It has to be a clear cut off from what has been undermining uh, Europe's ability to act, which was dependence on foreign autocratic powers, 
and it was only uh, stronger by uh, in, in the in sense of security empowered by transatlantic uh, alliance it includes of course a lot of the talk on the regular regulatory power and uh, uh, all the others but the basic fundamentals are uh, the production lines that need to be as independent as possible within the EU uh, that need to they will take time of course and here we are also in competition with the US through the IRA but um, in uh, in also uh, the ability to to understand that strategic autonomy is uh, acting together within the transatlantic alliance the Western alliance to build up our ability to deliver, to the same values, same principles that we are uh, in terms of societies and politics, we are all pledging to. Um, and that will include all term, all terms of you know industrial potential, digital potential, regulatory, um, and and being more and more uh, independent from uh, corruption that has been penetrating our institutions from within and from abroad. And the same comes with uh, fossil fuels and energy, which Europe, fortunately, has been ambitiously uh, undertaking. I think too little attention in Central Europe in particular has been paid to the fact that the green transition and green revolution, however hard economically, has been also had a strategic significance of of, uh, not allowing for furthering the dependence on uh, hostile foreign powers. That's uh, overall our recommendation, to be able to move on together as Europe. We need to take in the Central European sensitivities on the strategic autonomy and uh, propose uh, clear-cut definitions and reforms. We all agree to to put the center of debate uh, around it uh, because otherwise it will be picked apart by Xi Jinping, who in January quoted strategic autonomy, it must return, and also Vladimir Putin, who, surprise, surprise, he also talks now all of a sudden um, through his TASA agency about European strategic autonomy, that it will once come back, you know, but that's their definition. We, we shouldn't be lured by it. We should, we should define our politics on our own terms. I think this is actually the, my, my favorite part of, of your report, the de- defining strategic autonomy in a positive terms, not negative against Americans, but positive and much broader than just in defense policy. And I think strategic autonomy defined this way can actually um, reunite both Eastern and Western Europe um, in those efforts. So, uh, Wojciech, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Great talking to you, Leszek. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, we strongly recommend the War in the Future of Europe, the, the report by the Visegrad Insight. Please check the website. And that's all for me from today. Please check in for Ricardo next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.